0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of San Francisco. Today, we'll be talking to Seth Stevens-Davidowitz about his best-selling book, Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. This is my first time hosting this podcast, and I'm very excited to be able to start with this book. Um, at University of San Francisco, I created a new master's program in applied economics, which focuses on the digital economy and the data science skills needed to understand it. And this book is really the best introduction I know to all of the new uh, research and research opportunities that have been opened up uh, by the digitization of the economy. Uh, so again, really excited to hear from you, Seth. Um, so, But, but first, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, how did you, uh, what's your background and how did you come to write this
1: book? Uh, Thanks so much for having me, Peter. Uh, I'm, my, I, my career has been all over the place. I actually studied philosophy as an undergrad uh, and then switched to economics in graduate school. And in the middle, I was kind of uh, in my PhD program and uh, realized that despite being a PhD student in economics, I wasn't that interested in traditional economics. Uh, I kind of, when people talked about inflation or interest rates, my eyes kind of glazed over. Uh, but I really was interested in human nature and people. And I th- did love the tools that you learn in economics about statistical analysis and uh, multivariate regression. And uh, somewhere uh, near, near the completion of my PhD program, when I was looking for a dissertation topic, uh, I found out that Google, uh, the search engine search company had released uh, data with a tool, Google trends. I think it was actually called Google insights at the time. I, at that time uh, they, gave data on the searches that people made where and when people made certain searches. And I kind of became obsessed with this data just because uh, it was kind of more aligned with my interest, which is what people are like, what people do, even the secret thoughts that people sometimes have and don't share with others. And I thought that Google searches would just be really, really powerful because people are really honest on Google and they tell things to Google that they might not tell Uh, other people that they might not tell their friends, their partners, their parents, their children, their acquaintances, they might not tell surveys, uh, but they really do tell the truth to Google. I call it digital truth serum because it gets people to uh, tell things they wouldn't otherwise say. And I started exploring uh, all kinds of topics, racism, child abuse, mental health, depression. Uh, And so I worked at Google for a while and then someone... Uh, reached out about possibly writing a book about this topic. I was also writing columns uh, on this uh, on this data. I should say, uh, I got re- along that a lot of people didn't necessarily support uh, my decision to focus on Google searches. I applied for a bunch of academic jobs and got rejected. Uh, so that was kind of another part of the career story. Uh, but I was writing columns on this uh, and uh, someone's just writing a book. And I, I decided I wanted to try doing that, uh, not knowing just how painful it is to write a book.
0: So, how did you? Uh, what kind of work did you do when you were at Google? Were you doing more kind of independent research, or or supporting their their business activities more directly?
1: Uh, mostly supporting their business activities. Uh, Google has a twenty percent time where you can do things that fit more of your interests, but uh, largely I was helping various uh, you know economic modeling of advertising and things of that nature.
0: Okay, but the uh, the research in your your dissertation and then in this book is. Uh, based on all based on public data and not anything exclusive that Google gave you access
1: to. Is yeah, that right? That's right. Uh, all okay. the data is public. I probably know a little bit my way around some of the public data sources more than other people. So I kind of am able to set, you know, uh, put together different types of data and, and, and find things, but be- you know, better actually, initially I was able to get Google has this privacy threshold where they don't show data on Google trends. If it's below, if the search volume is below that privacy threshold. But I figured out a way to hack around that privacy threshold uh, which actually gave me better data for a while but then google eventually closed that loophole
0: well i'm glad to hear even if it impacted your research i'm glad to hear they fixed that one
1: it it, yeah i mean i wasn't learning anything that compromised anybody's privacy right Uh, right. just the privacy threshold was very very high
0: okay um yeah so uh i'd I'd be interested to hear also uh you know since this is a new books and economics um, podcast i'd like to hear more um about you know the the different receptions you've received you know both initially and over time from from economists from pursuing this this uh vein of research but first let's uh let's get into you know some of the nitty-gritty of like what kind of stuff uh you found out so i think you you mentioned uh racism as one of the topics you looked into uh, quite early on
1: yeah that was the first study i did uh so i did that study and i started in 2011 uh, so, Barack Obama had been elected in 2008, first African American elected president of the United States. There's this idea back then that we lived in a post racial society, and there even was research suggesting that race was not a major factor in whether people chose to uh, vote for Obama or vote for his opponent or not vote. And, uh, you know, but, but a dan- it's really hard to understand racism uh, in the United States because it's socially unacceptable, thankfully, to harbor racist ideas. So if you ask people in a survey, are you racist, or did you not support Obama because he's black, people are going to say, no, 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 of course not, not in a million years, not me. So I was shocked uh, when I did this research, just how frequently people made explicit uh, racist searches on Google. So things like N-word jokes. Uh, and you can imagine like the mindset of someone searching N-word jokes on Google uh, and so there, there was a lot that was surprising in the data. I was surprised how frequently these searches are made, millions of searches every year. Uh, at the time I was looking, it's actually thankfully gone down since then. Uh, people were searching the N-word as much as they were searching things like migraine and economist and Lakers and Daily Show. Uh, I was also shocked by the location of the searches. Uh, so if you had asked me where is racism highest in the United States before I saw Google searches... I would have guessed that racism was uh, predominantly concentrated in the South. Uh, we think about the history of the United States. The Civil War was fought North versus South. South supported slavery. North opposed slavery. We think of Jim Crow laws in the South. Uh, we tend to uh, locate racism as uh, in, in mostly in the in the South, and definitely some Southern areas were highest in the search volume for these racist searches. Uh, Southern Mississippi, South Louisiana, parts of South Carolina, but the highest state actually uh, was west virginia which is a nor- was a northern state in the civil war and uh, other areas that were near the top in race the ra- this racism index were western pennsylvania eastern ohio upstate new york uh, really the divide of racism uh, these days in the united states i think is more east versus west more than north versus south so uh, racism seems to get a lot lower as you get to the Western part of the country uh, and is much higher in the Eastern part of the country, including uh, parts of the Northeast. And oh, so then, so I had this uh, index from Google searches of race in the United States and I compared it to uh, votes for Obama compared to votes for the previous uh, democratic candidate who was Caucasian, John Kerry. And there's this very, very strong, clear relationship that uh, areas that, uh, had higher racism supported uh, Obama less than Kerry, and you can add a whole bunch of robustness checks, whether it's uh, you know d- controls for demographics or controls for economic variables, or controls for gun ownership or controls for various measures of values. Uh, it very clearly was a strong predictor that, uh, despite what people were saying, where more than ninety-five percent of people said that uh, race would have no impact on how they judged a presidential candidate, uh, racism clearly cost Obama. Uh, numerous votes uh, in both 2008 and 2012 he of course was able to overcome that uh, for other reasons
0: yeah it's really fascinating you know in America the the social unacceptability of racism is so strong you know uh, as we speak there's a recent uh, uh, tragic murders in um, in Georgia where uh, the guy who committed the murders was Very wanted to be very clear that he did not commit the murders because he was racist, but apparently only because he had a sex addiction. So that was viewed as somehow less, uh, or at least presented as less tarnishing to his reputation uh, in some weird sense. He did admit to murder, he did admit to sex addiction, but he couldn't admit to to having racist motivations.
1: Yeah, and arguably it's a good thing too uh, that uh, racist thoughts are so socially unacceptable because there were time periods where racist thoughts weren't socially unacceptable and People during those periods uh, were very racist and did very bad things based on that racism. Uh, Anti-Asian hate is interesting. Uh, there's actually a recent paper by Runjig Liu and Sophie Yanying Shang, uh, two scholars, uh, using similar methodology to study anti-Asian hate, uh, basically searches for what they call the C word uh, on Google and they found that uh, there have been these track hate crimes against Asians. There have been rise, a rise in recent times. I think they track some of the rise to some of the rhetoric that Trump was using about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic.
0: Right. Yeah. There's been uh, a lot of concern about that, and a lot of uh, a lot of increasing reports of uh, of hate crimes in general uh, since the since the the pandemic, and as you said, the way that uh, that Trump and some people in his administration uh, have uh, have referred to. Uh, refer to the disease um yeah well so so by so basically by looking at what these uh what kinds of searches people were doing uh and how that varied um across across time and space you're saying we can get this kind of new window into you know what they what they really think because they're you know they're not they're not trying to publicly display anything you know or they're not they're not putting on a show when they type in a google search they're just that's what they're interested in that's you know they want an n-word joke or they want to uh look up something about you know the c word used to refer to asian people and so that's kind of you're saying that's kind of the digital truth serum there's just no no incentive for them to uh to hide their true feelings when they're typing in the searches
1: yeah exactly i think there is an important caution uh which is that we never know why any individual makes a search, and certainly when I was doing research on my paper, I typed into Google "N word jokes" because I need to see for the research, okay, what comes up when someone makes this search, uh, which is kind of evidence of, uh, you know, what the mindset of people making that search is. And I'd like to think I'm not, you know, I don't harbor explicit racial animus, uh, but you know, there's one, adi- there there been a, there were a few additional searches from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, on Edward jokes when I was doing this research, I think in general, uh, those kind of curiosity searches or scientific research searches or journalism searches uh, make up a small percent of searches, and they're kind of swamped uh, by people making these searches uh, because they really do harbor that attitude. Uh, you know that that you know for every maybe one uh, you know scientist in Cambridge researching racism uh, on Google, uh, you know there are hundreds. Of people who really do enjoy N word jokes and are learning to, you know, are trying to find the latest, uh, the latest joke. So
0: I guess if I was trying to uh, uh, feel more optimistic and convince myself that uh, America is less racist than uh, than the searches might suggest, could I could I make the argument that we don't really know like how many you know how many people this represents? I mean, you know, it's just, maybe it's just like. 10 people in each state who are, you know, let's say to stereotype like 80 year old and they just, uh, you know, just got on the internet and they're typing in from the old folks home and writing all this, you know, searching a million times for like jokes that, that they and their small group of racist friends might find amusing, but there's not, but it's not representative of the the broader population.
1: Well, the key is that there was this strong correlation between, uh, the searches and decline in Obama's vote share. That I think I calculate he probably lost 4% of the vote from racial animus, which when you actually do the math, means that 10% of people who would have otherwise supported a white Democrat didn't support Obama just because he was black. Uh, That said, I think there are reasons for optimism along some of the lines you're speaking speaking about, particularly who is making these searches. So definitely when you look at the demographic correlations of racist searches, old uh, age, uh, is one of the strongest and these searches are highest in areas with older populations. Uh, I actually looked at the data in literally retirement communities. So there you, you never, uh, Google doesn't say the demographics of people make these searches, but you can look at cities where more than 50% of the population, uh, is, uh, elderly. And these searches are highly elevated in those areas so rates of rates. These searches are, are much higher than the rest of parts of the United States. Uh, in addition, uh, these searches have gone down over time. Uh, Steven Pinker pointed that out in his book, Alignment Now, about how the world is getting better, that there has been a strong, a, a noticeable decline in N-word jokes and many other racist measures over time on Google. Uh, so definitely, I think, as as bad as things were in 2008 and 2012, and uh, I, I would say in 2008 and 2012, uh, racism against African-Americans was higher than many of us would have thought based on traditional metrics. Uh, but first of all, we have to keep things in perspective. Barack Obama was still elected president. 90% of people who would have felt comfortable voting for a white Democrat in that situation also felt comfortable vote, voting for a black Democrat in that situation, which was tremendous progress from uh, you know 50, let alone 100 years before that. Uh, and the decline in racism has continued. Uh, e- even through the, I would argue, racially charged presidency of Donald Trump, uh, there continues to be kind of a decline in in interest in some of this racist material. Well, that, that is
0: good to hear, because um, yeah, definitely uh, is still still very much there. Um, but but good to hear that it's it's seems to be on the downswing at least in, in by some measures. Um, so so uh, what else uh, what else did you, you looked at? With, I don't know so you did this initial racism uh, study. What other topics did you did you dig into uh, using your your digital truth serum?
1: Uh, sexual insecurity was a big one. Sex in general is a big topic of the book, uh, because that's another area where, uh, people aren't comfortable, uh, sharing what's really on their minds. Uh, there's a lot of shame and embarrassment around everything related to sex. Uh, but people on Google do things, type things about their insecurities, about lack of sex in their marriage, which is a shockingly high complaint, lack-, lack of sex in their relationships. Uh, and then there's the whole digital truth serum of pornography, which I think is a really revolutionary development in human sexuality research. Uh, I looked at self-induced abortion, uh, another kind of sensitive area, and a little bit of a sad, depressing area, uh, where there's been, uh, definitely if you look at, I like, there's, I think, 700,000 Google searches a year. For, something, for things related to self-induced abortion, even really disturbing searches, how to give yourself a coat hanger abortion. I mean, uh, oh, wow. you know, scary stuff. And the map of these searches is almost perfectly correlated with parts of the country where it's hard to get an abortion. Uh, Mississippi, Tennessee, Oklahoma. I mean, just like literally a nearly perfect uh, relationship. Uh there is also there also was a rise a noticeable rise uh, in, in periods where they close a, a legal abortion clinics you do see a noticeable rise in searches for self induced abortion. Let's uh, study a lot of topics. Oh, recently during the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, I looked there. I looked at and some other scholars have looked at this as well. Uh, whether you can pre- uh, m- m- get a measure of how high levels of COVID-19 are based on Google searches for various symptoms. And one of the things I found was that there was almost a perfect relationship with searches for loss of smell and COVID-19 rates. So like the R-squared on uh, search Google searches for I can't smell and rates of COVID-19 in states in the United States at the time I did the study, which is fairly early in the pandemic, was about 0.9, which was is an insanely hard high R-squared. And that wow. relationship has continued throughout the pandemic. I and others have pointed out that if you just look at, you know, past seven days, loss loss of smell searches, it's really able to track the pandemic. It was highest in Florida when rates were highest in Florida. It was highest in Arizona when rates were highest in Arizona. It was highest in South Dakota when rates were highest in South Dakota. So really, really strong measure of COVID-19, which also uh, can uh, can be of use in understanding uh, the prevalence of the disease in parts of the world where uh Measurement is lacking. where testing is lacking. It, it Google searches were an early indicator that there was a COVID nineteen pandemic outbreak in Ecuador, uh, even though test data there wasn't really uh, widespread testing to show uh, this outbreak.
0: Right, that's a great point. That you know this uh, you know new forms of data. You know in the U.S. we're kind of well well documented and tracked uh, a lot of different ways. You know not perfectly, but but many different ways, but. Uh, yeah, around the the developing world, um, where they may not have the same kind of infrastructure uh, for for medical tracking. These, uh, you know, to the extent that everyone, uh, almost almost everyone, or at least every village or whatever, has a has a cell phone and someone who can Google stuff, uh, you're going to see you know, it's a new way to to get access to to trends or emerging problems uh, in places that otherwise we would be prohibitively challenging to to find out about.
1: That's true, and I think in general a good point about big data. Is that it's most powerful when the existing data sucks. So, uh, like there, there are many reasons, and we've discussed them. You can think of many more why Google searches are not going to be a perfect measure of what's going on in a population. Uh, You know, some people make Google searches for curiosity reasons. Some people think about something and don't make a Google search. Some people don't use the internet. Some people use Bing or DuckDuckGo or a different search engine. So it's Never, you're like whatever you're trying to measure, you're never going to have an R squared of a one between Google searches and that thing you're trying to measure. Uh, But if the other measurements of it are really lousy, then even if Google's not a perfect measure, even if the R squared between Google and what you're trying to measure is uh, 0.7 or 0.8 or 0.6 or 0.5, that still can be a really powerful tool in better understanding the topic. I think that's. One of the reasons I started with studying racism because the existing measures of racism were so lacking. Uh, Google searches, although you know, I certainly do not believe that n-word searches is the definitive measure of racism and a perfect measure of racism. And if uh, some place was the second highest media market uh, in that metric, and another place was the third highest media market in that metric, we can with hundred percent certainty that, that say that the second, you know, the the, the uh, medium market that ranks second has more race than the medium market uh, that ranks third. I don't think you would say that at all. I think it's a noisy metric. But compared to uh, you know the other tools we've used, where say surveys where there's so much lying, uh, I think the Google searches really were a, a better tool, and we're able to detect. I I, I believe uh, a pretty convincing uh, effect of racism on voting decisions that has been hard to find using other measures.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I guess you know the one limit there would be it's still, you know, getting at more uh, explicit bias as opposed to you know other uh, implicit biases. Whereas someone who would never you know say the n word or think it or you know search for jokes uh, might still harbor harbor various kind of prejudices um, that that might not come out, but. Then again, the fact that you know you can find uh, a significant relationship between the the use of the between this very explicit measures of very explicit bias uh, or explicit um, racist attitudes uh, and and voting outcomes uh, shows that uh, again, it's not all about implicit bias. There's a lot of the the good old fashioned stuff um, still still out there, even if it's uh, a little bit more undercover than it used to be.
1: I think that's right, Peter. And I think uh, other scholars have said this that there's almost been too much attention on implicit bias relative to explicit bias uh, in academic research. Uh, I think, you know, like no question, obviously implicit bias plays a role in people's lives. If, you know, a a darker skinned person is trying to get a cab in New York City uh, where explicit bias may be low, I think implicit bias may really play, may really, uh, you know, uh, play a disturbing role there. Uh, But I think because, uh, you know, uh, explicit bias has been harder to detect using surveys as social norms have changed. I think it hasn't been a huge, uh, fo- uh, a, a, a huge emphasis of academic research, although it's still there and still plays a big role in, uh, you know, in discrimination today.
0: Yeah, it may also be the the relatively you know sheltered um, and at least in theory enlightened uh, environment of you know academics or you know people working in. Uh, you know, the news media and, you know, that kind of uh, business where where no one's going to be very explicit about something. So it may be easy for for people in that kind of environment to think, you know, the implicit thing is the only thing left or that's the main thing to focus on, which may be true in their environment, but maybe not uh, when we consider kind of the the country as a whole and the parts, uh, you know, places outside of San Francisco and New York that uh, uh, you and I are
1: not living in. Exactly, and I think implicit bias—people, a lot of people with implicit biases. So you, I, and probably everybody listening have some implicit biases, and I hope not uh, to not 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 much of the explicit bias. I think people with implicit bias do try to fight that pretty hard. So it may influence us. Uh, you know, there have been studies of uh, you know referees can be uh, biased when they're making splits, uh, you know, second decisions on who to call a foul on. Uh, you know, So in, in, in some of these like split-second decisions, our implicit biases may play a role. But if we're deciding uh, who to, whom to hire, or whom to date, or uh, whom to accept to a university, uh, those of us that, that don't have explicit bias but do have implicit bias uh, will try very hard to overrule these implicit biases, which can limit the, the, uh, the consequences of them, thankfully. Uh, but people who have explicit bias, who just don't like people of a certain race, uh you know they're e- even in decisions where they can step back to think uh, they still are not going to treat these groups very well
0: right right um, wow well thats that's all really really fascinating that you know you can undercover uh, so much with that um and and it's great to, to learn that um, you know academics are still uh, pursuing more and more research in this area um so the the other th- the, another thing you talked about in your book is that you know this kind of you uh, a lot of the big data is often about kind of the big picture, uh, but you also mentioned that that big data in some contexts can actually let us zoom in and, and look at things at a more micro level. Could you tell me more about uh, what you mean by that, and, and maybe give some examples of how that works?
1: Yeah, so uh, there's there one of my favorite map. Uh, if anyone wants to look it up, was of big data was made by the New York Times, and it was basically it was using Facebook data, uh, and it. Said the most popular baseball team in every zip code of the United States, and what was really cool. I mean, the map looks exactly as you'd expect. There aren't huge surprises. Uh, that you know, it's the the team with the most Facebook likes in Seattle is the Mariners. The team with the most Facebook likes uh, in New York is the Yankees. Actually, one of the my the f- fun things about the graph is it turns out uh, no, about the map is that it turns out that the uh, A's and the Mets. Are, there's no place they're the most popular team. They're kind of strictly dominated. The A's are strictly dominated by the Giants, and the Mets are strictly dominated by the Yankees. Every part of New York, the Yankees has have more fans than the, than the Mets. Uh, but anyway, what's really cool is they actually made uh, they 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 drew borders of uh, where certain sports teams uh, become more pop. Two, where two base where one baseball team becomes more popular than the other. So there's a border at which that The Red Sox become more popular than the Yankees, uh, and they found that you know Hartford, Connecticut, which is just just a little bit, uh, I guess, west of the border, and they're actually a Yankees city. Uh, the Yankees have more fans than the Red Sox in Hartford, uh, whereas I think Waterbury is a Red Sox uh, town uh, just across just across on the Red Sox border. And what's this amazing map is only possible because Facebook data is so large. So if you imagine, let's say you took you conducted a survey, you asked 2,000 people, you said, what's your favorite baseball team? You might have 10 people in all of Connecticut. You might ha- you probably will have nobody in Hartford, nobody in Waterbury, nobody in uh, tiny towns, that's for sure. And you wouldn't have sufficient data from a survey of 2,000 people to say in every zip code of the United States, which team is most popular. But because Facebook data is comprehensive, uh, it has data on h- hundreds of millions of Americans, uh, they really are able to zoom in uh, in this way, and uh, you know, a, yeah, and and uh, I, I've talked about people have used tax data to find the towns in the United States where it's best to grow up, uh, and uh, just uh, you, again using the fact that these data sets are so big, uh, you you have big samples for even subsets of the population. So you have big samples for every city. Big, you know, t- I've done time data where you can see how searches change uh, from, you know, 8 o'clock a.m. to 9 o'clock a.m. And that requires enormous samples to zoom in in that way.
0: Right. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing add to certainly not not something you could imagine ever doing. Well, first of all, assuming people still even answered the phone for some phone surveys, which I think you know, most of us don't anymore, because yeah. uh, we're pretty tired of it. And so, you know, but even if you could get people to answer, uh, answer that phone survey, getting the the thousands and thousands of responses, you'd need to uh, get anything equivalent to, to that would just be uh, just be impossible to achieve. Um, yeah. actually, you mentioned, you know, so you mentioned this um, uh, point about like, you know, the best places to grow up, uh, which I think leads nicely into the, the, Next thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, so, you know, economists talk a lot about identification, which, for those who aren't economists, is just a fancy way of uh, discussing kind of the age-old question of when do you have a correlation versus a, a real causal relationship. Um, and that's one of the w- big ways in which we like to imagine that you know economists looking at data are um, approaching things differently from, say, big data data scientists coming from more of a computer science background. Um, but a lot of what you've talked about has been really more correlational. So, so how does that, um, way of thinking play into, to your work? Uh,
1: I think big data naturally, uh, can help with identification because a lot of times, uh, the zooming in kind of leads to natural experiments. I talked in the book, a study by Josh Angris and other scholars about elite schools in the United States, in elite high schools in the United States. So what happens when you go to say Stuyvesant in New York? And in New York, uh, New York City, you take a test to get accepted to various uh, schools, and there's a sharp cutoff where if you get uh, just just above that score, you're allowed to go to say Stuyvesant, you're accepted to Stuyvesant. If you get just below that score, you're not allowed to go to Stuyvesant. Uh, you're not you're not you have you go to, you have to go to a different school. So you can compare people just above and just below that cutoff. Uh, you assume that one point on that test doesn't really tell much about a person. It, it's just kind of random. Maybe they happen to know a word on the vocab section uh, because they had read a book five years ago that include that word. There's not bu- there, there's not much fundamental that's causing a one-point difference in that score. But the one-point difference in score leads to a fundamentally different uh, outcome as to where they go to high school. And when you do that, you find out that actually going to Stuyvesant has no effect, no Detectable long-term effects on things like SAT scores or college attended, uh, and that I think, uh, re- and that that study again is only pow- uh, possible because they have administrative data on everybody who took that test and went to hu- to Stuyvesant, including uh, everybody on both sides of uh, both sides of the score cutoff. Uh, if you just had t- took a survey of a thousand people who went to Stuyvesant, you wouldn't have enough people. Very close to the cutoff to do a study like that. So actually, I think big data and identification work together can work together very nicely,
0: right? And so here, I guess the, so big data, you know, as as you imply here, comes can come from a lot of different places. It's not just uh, sort of internet um, big data, but also from uh, well, I guess it's still you know, it's obviously it's still data, so it's still collected, you know, uh, and computerized somewhere um, in order to give people access, but maybe also you know, collected by by government agencies as opposed to uh, collective in the private sector.
1: Yeah, I, I think administrative data is another big, another source of big data that is very important. And Raj Chetty, more than anybody, has shown the power of that data, uh, studying tax records. Uh, but yeah, but I think again, I think people, uh, the idea that uh, a big data set, even an internet data set, uh, you know, doesn't allow for identification is just untrue. So, speaking of baseball, uh, one of my favorite subjects, I did my own study uh, where I basically Uh, downloaded from Facebook's advertising platform for every baseball team, how many fans they have of men and women of every age, so how many 30-year-olds like the Mets, how many 31-year-olds like the Mets, how many 32-year-olds like the Mets, do that for every team. And then you can actually do what I would argue is a well-identified experiment of how a baseball team performing really well when someone is a kid increases the number of fans they have as adults. So, you see these really sharp patterns that basically, whenever a baseball team happens to win a, a championship, uh, boys who are like eight years old uh, when they won that championship are more likely to support that team the rest of their lives. So, they're going to have kind of a boost of fans. Uh, you know, the Mets who won the World Series in 1986 and uh, 1969 have an unusual number of fans. Who won the, who, among, among men born in 1978 and 1961. Uh, and you know, doing this over, the, over many baseball teams, you see these really sharp patterns where the age of five to 15 have the most influence and the age of eight has the biggest influence on winning over adult fans. And that type of study, uh, which I, again, I argue is an identified study, uh, takes advantage of the zooming in allowed by Facebook data. So, again, if you did a survey, of two thousand people and said, "What baseball team is your favorite?" Uh, you wouldn't have uh, many Mets fans among born in 1978, uh, and co- be able to compare that to teams of other fans born in 1978. But because you have Facebook's comprehensive data uh, that includes uh, you know millions of Americans born in 1978, uh, you are able to see those really sharp, neat patterns.
0: Right. And I think you mentioned that, uh, there's similar, uh, similar patterns in, in people forming their political views as well. Right.
1: Yeah. That was a study of Andrew Gelman and Yair Gates, uh, uh, yeah, just making sure.
0: Yeah. I think that's, that's right. But, um, yeah, Yeah. it's, uh, and, and again, I think what this highlights is also just, you know, the, the breadth of things that we can study, uh, with, with economics, uh, techniques now, you know, that, that, really the the scope of what, what is considered economics, you know, uh, in in, you know, still I'd say most econ 101 classes, the idea of like, you know, what do you how do you perceive yourself or what's your favorite team or what's your what are your political views is, you know, taken as either, you know, either a rational incorporation of information or just as a fixed sort of uh thing that we just take as take for granted and then we'll look at what markets do. Um, so it's it's really cool how uh, this kind of research can uh, open up uh, a little bit of the black box into, you know, these, these deep aspects of like our, our uh, formation, of our personalities and, and preferences that previously were sort of left as, as part of the black box.
1: Yeah, for sure. And like baseball, I think most people realize that there's something contingent in what baseball team you support if you're a baseball fan or what basketball team you support, what soccer team you support, what football team you support, like ob- just to state the obvious, most people support team of the town they grew up in. So it's pretty easy for me to imagine that if I grew up in, uh, you know, Seattle, I'd be more likely to be a Mariners fan instead of a Mets fan. Uh, and I kind of also real, it kind of also makes sense that, you know, the team your father rooted for, would in, or mother rooted for you, would, rooted for, would influence what team you support and how good the team was when you were young, Would influence the team you support, but something like our political views uh, we view as so much more fundamental to who we are. And what uh, the Gelman Gates study shows is that even something like that has this huge contingent element where the popularity of the party that uh, in power uh, when you are between the ages of 14 and 24 has a massive influence in your lifelong political affiliation. Yeah, that
0: one is that one's a little bit more more depressing to note. Like in a sense, uh, although you know you see it, it's usually easier to see it in the other side than it is to see it uh, with your own political affiliation. But the extent to which that it really is about you know supporting your team and rooting for your team, and uh, whatever whatever set of facts uh, fits with um, your team winning, you you find those persuasive and uh, and otherwise not. Um, yeah. Not uh, not not the idealized marketplace for ideas that uh, that uh, we were all taught to hope for but uh good to know that we have these to recognize that we have these biases and to you know especially document them this way with data
1: yeah for Um, sure yeah uh, it's i think some of the findings uh in data can be depressing on many dimensions uh because they kind of cut through the lies both that people tell us and that we tell ourselves about how the world works uh but i i i Kind of view myself as an optimistic person i viewed the book everybody lies as an optimistic book because i do think that learning about these things is kind of the first step towards uh, fixing them in various ways
0: yeah well that's uh you know i'm, I'm a professional social scientist so yeah i'm hoping <laughs> always hope that i uh, mean own my own research actually study uh you know uh, authoritarianism so my hope is that by learning more about stuff we can uh, find ways to to deal with it and, uh, and make the world better but uh, it's uh definitely always a, a challenge uh, when you're Looking at some of these dark places, yeah, um, for
1: sure. I know that uh, it sounds like we both have a similar. It, it, I, I'm a fan of your work as well, and we both have a similar tendency to go to some of these darker places and study them. So, uh, but hopefully, towards the end of of uh, improving things.
0: Yes, that's that's the that's the goal. Um, so, so speaking of improving things, I guess uh, one. I wanted to ask you about um, you know this is uh, actually I was just listening to um, another uh, show talking about um, Google and uh, Timnit Gebru you know who uh, left or was uh, pushed out um, uh, as she tells it unexpectedly um, from her her role doing AI ethics there uh, and you know that's that's. Uh, becoming a huge issue you know, we sent uh founded a set there's a new center for um data ethics at uh, at usf that uh craig newmark or craigslist uh, helped to support um and there's there's a lot of interest in this around the country um but you definitely uh you know were were on this issue uh, in your book so what what are some of the the big concerns there both from perspective of uh firms using uh, using this kind of new big data uh, and also from uh, the perspective of governments having having using this data and u- using the kind of analytical techniques that uh, you know you and others are helping to develop
1: yeah well uh, so i always say big data isn't good or bad it's just powerful and people can use it for good aims people use it for bad aims i think the negative aims of big data have gotten so much attention that in everybody's lives i want to focus more on the positive use cases kind of understanding the world uh, you know, better improving improving the world uh, because I think that's gotten less attention, and it is really important. Uh, but there definitely are dangers. Uh, so uh, companies knowing a lot about people uh, can use that information to sell them stuff that they don't need, uh, or to inv- it cause problems themselves. There's a famous example of Target uh, that they sent a letter to. I think a 16-year-old girl saying she was pregnant, and her father got really fur- got furious. Said my daughter's not pregnant, and it turns out she was pregnant. And Target had figured that out with their statistical modeling based on things she had buy bought. Uh, so there are definitely uh, uh, concerns here. Uh, there also are concerns about various biases that artificial intelligence can, uh, amplify. Uh, I I'm a little bit less concerned about that because I view that as an opportunity for improvement. So human beings, we all know, as we talked, we've talked about, uh, have a lot of racial prejudices and gender prejudices and artificial intelligence. It's been found can have, uh, similar prejudices. You know, there've been examples of, you know, that if you search on Google for scientists, more male scientists uh, come up than female scientists, uh, not because Google, uh, which is an algorithm, uh, is sexist or harbors animus towards women, uh, just because they're uh, reflecting the, pre- the prejudices of society, which has made it easier for males to be scientists than females. I think to some degree, there's, there's an easier solution for discrimination in artificial intelligence or machine learning which you can just change the code so google can just say we want to show a, you we we need to show a larger number of female scientists and then they will show a large number of female scientists uh whereas societal prejudices are much more difficult to change so i think i'm a little optimistic about the potential of uh us to use artificial intelligence machine learning to try to just by changing literally one or two lines of code uh eliminating some of these prejudices that are deeply embedded in society
0: yeah i suppose it depends on your reference point you know if you if you were uh start out from the perspective that that ai should be like perfect and should you know give you exactly the unbiased uh view of the world that that you know we'd ideally like um or if someone sold you that story that you know look it's done by a machine so there's no you know no more racism because it's all inside a machine um then i think i think a lot of people are coming from the perspective of you know being disappointed by the ways in which in which it falls short of that but yeah i think from uh your perspective of, if the comparison point is do you want uh you know some person to do this well it's it's a lot harder to re-engineer people and you know you can't rewrite their code i mean you know People go through decades of psychotherapy and still manage to not rewrite their code and still doing the same things over and over again so you know not not that's a challenging thing to do whereas uh you know obviously uh changing your machine learning learning algorithm is uh is challenging but not but probably not at the same scale and you can keep tinkering at it and uh and keep hoping to make it better
1: yeah exactly uh yeah they're also just ethical questions uh I, I talk, I talk about, uh, th- th- there are other ethical questions I talk about like a minority report where there's a movie where you could predict potentially murders before they happen. And there's a question of, could you use search data to do this and, uh, what would happen if you could? So there's no question that people search on Google things like how to kill someone, how to kill my girlfriend, literally. Uh, which are really really disturbing searches, and uh, sh- uh, w- what should we do with this information? Uh, should we should you know government police departments intervene if if uh, somebody is making searches of this nature? Uh, should they inform someone whose life is at risk uh, based on these searches? Uh, there are deep ethical questions. There uh, is, is is that an evasion of privacy? Certainly not everybody who makes a search like that is going to go through uh, with. that act and in the united states it's generally not a crime to have a nasty thought uh it's a crime to act on that nasty thought so like it i I think uh, it just shows all the types of all the uh ethical questions that we're going to deal with as some of these tools like artificial intelligence and machine learning get more powerful
0: right yeah the you know and and there's there's so much potential always for for sort of false positives as well as, I guess false positives, more the issue there, not so much false negatives, but so they've been surprised lately to learn like how, uh, how huge true crime kind of stories are, um, you know, on, on TikTok and on TV and, uh, you know, some, uh, younger people I know have talked about that and it's like, I'm sure they, they might well be Googling some of this stuff because they're, you know, they just find it, you know, they have a morbid fascination with it, which is, uh, you know, not, uh, you know, that, that's their own thing, but it's definitely not illegal. Um. So, yeah, you got to be really careful with how you, how you use these things and how you draw inferences from it. Um, so, uh, you mentioned um, that, uh, yeah, early on you didn't, uh, you know, your work wasn't really well received by, by the academic economics community. Um, maybe it'd be great if you could tell us more uh, about that, you know, the concerns people had and, and how you've seen that uh, evolving in the time since you first sort of set out on this uh, research trajectory.
1: Uh, yeah, so there were. I kind of got mixed responses to my work. Some people seem to like it a lot. Some people didn't like it so much. I would say. Uh, I, I I think over time these tools have definitely become more popular. So I'm actually not an academic now. Uh, that ship right, right. seemed to have sailed. Uh, and, but I I definitely get most of my friends are academics from my PhD program, and they'll kind of always be sending me slides of presentations they're seeing where people are using google trends so it does seem like it's becoming more and more a tool of uh you know social science research including economics research uh considered less kind of weird or strange uh than it was when maybe i started this research uh yeah I i i don't know it's 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 i think there were a lot of issues part of it was just using google trends part of it was i'm not necessarily the most specialized person uh i Tend to get easily bored with topics, uh, so I, you know, I, I studied baseball for a little bit, and then I, you know, write a study on that, and then I'm like, oh, now I want to study basketball. Well, that's not that different, but then, but then I'm like, now I want to study murder, and now I want to study suicide, and now I want to study racism, and now I want to study child abuse, and I think that can be difficult in ac- to find a home in academia where uh, you tend to be rewarded for a more specialized uh, knowledge. I think some people probably thought i was a dilettante and that's not necessarily an unfair critique yeah no i think
0: i think that's right there is kind of uh you know people are supposed to work in their category and in their research community which is usually uh oriented around a topic more than a a methodology so then, if you you know take the same methodology or even worse you know switch methodologies and go from topic to topic then yeah, no one, no one has a complete picture of you. Um, that's certainly just, even just as a, as an academic advice, you know, career advice that I got from, from people is you want to, you want to pick your thing and be the person who does that one thing, you know, uh, really, really well. And everyone who works in that area knows you. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that can be, uh, but you know, that can be boring when you're, when you're excited you know, you get excited about a new topic and, you know, it's kind of goes against what people say is, oh, the great thing about being academia is, you know, you don't have a boss, you get to research, you know, study whatever you want, but, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, we're not completely free to just, uh, look at whatever strikes our fancy.
1: Yeah. At least not before tenure.
0: Right. Right. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So as you mentioned, you know, the, that you've left academia, um, you worked at Google for a little while and then, uh, you've put out this book. Um, and so, so what are you, uh, what are you working on now?
1: So now I do th- three things. I consult for a whole bunch of companies, Basically, people read my book and reached out to me and I give talks, a keynote speaker, uh, which I didn't even know was a job before I signed up to do it, uh, which is really fun. I go to a bunch of corporate retreats in uh, different parts of the world and kind of speak about some of my research or how it might help their company. And then I'm working on another book, uh, tentatively titled, You Know Less Than You Think. about how you can use data to make better decisions in your life.
0: Oh, well, that sounds, uh, that sounds fascinating. Um, so yeah, we'll definitely have to have you, uh, back on the podcast to, to talk about that one. Uh, once it's, uh, once it's ready to go. Um, I think again, that's, uh, certainly fits with something that introspectively we should all know. And, and, you know, uh, psychologists and behavioral economists have, uh, gotten, gotten really good at, at pointing out to us uh, some of those limitations um you know like we were discussing in the political context of how it's a little bit more about supporting your team than about rational evaluation of the facts sometimes um but uh it's a message that usually is easier it's good i like that you've you've said it about you because it really is you know everyone wants to apply all these theories to other people but it's usually a lot harder to uh, acknowledge uh, these flaws uh, in your own thinking
1: <laughs> yeah that's uh, definitely true i think like i a friend of mine was saying he's much better at giving advice to other people than following good advice uh, and i think that's true and for me as well and probably for lots of other people
0: right exactly i mean a l- little bit human nature but um uh it's um anyway i'll be looking forward to to reading a book a book full of your advice um once it once it's ready um All right. Well, I think, um, that's, uh, that's about all the time we have. So, uh, so thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, I really enjoyed having you on and uh, again, hope to have you back uh, again soon with the next book.
1: I I have my one joke now that I always use, which is whenever somebody gives me a compliment, I say, I'm the author of everybody lies and there's nothing that people lie about more than I enjoy talking to you. I hope to talk to you soon. I enjoy your book. So, uh, I I always take these with the appropriate grain of salt for someone who has explored the deepest recesses of the human mind and seen just how much deception there is. So you're the
0: the optimist looking into the darkness.
1: Uh, Fair enough. Yeah. So it's been, all right. Well, it has been
0: great to have you um, and uh, thanks and
1: uh, uh, take care. Thanks so much for having me, Peter.